0: Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Graham Phillips. Now, Graham is a pharmacist in the UK and he's been a pharmacist for 35 years. He's a registered pharmacist, a fellow of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society and the owner of iHeart Pharmacy Group. And I really like his story of his transition because when you think of a pharmacist, what do you think about? Someone who is filling a prescription for medication, someone who's giving out medications, who makes their living by helping people get the medications they need. Well... Well, Graham went the other way. After 35 years of practicing pharmacy, he realized this pill for every ill was not helping people live better lives, was not really helping people improve their health, not in the way that he set out to want to help people. So he did about a, a bit of a 180 to say let's instead focus on lifestyle. And let's use different tools like CGMs and like sleep trackers and different things to help take that data and integrate it to help you see how you can improve your life, your lifestyle, so we can take medicines away from you. And that's what I love about a story a pharmacist focusing on de prescription, my favorite word, de prescription. Uh, so hopefully, through this interview, you'll get inspired by his journey, by his passion, and get some of the the tips that he um, that he gives us about lifestyle, about sleep, about nutrition, about use of CGMs, um, about use of sleep trackers, and how he sees those as being beneficial. So, without further ado, let's get into this interview with Graham Phillips. <laughs> Well, Graham Phillips, thanks for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's an absolute delight
0: to be here, Brett. So you, as I mentioned, you've been a pharmacist for 35 years in the UK. Now, first, before we even start hearing about your journey, I I need some education because you were educating me a little bit about the difference between what I see as sort of like the u s based pharmacy and the u k pharmacy, and so i 'm confused on that i 'd assume maybe some of our listeners are, so why don 't sure. you give us just a brief description about the the main differences between yeah. u s based pharmacies and others
1: so and i don 't in any way want to disparage my uh, American uh, pharmacy cousins, um, but I think the role is in the u k somewhat different I mean if we have a national health service so it 's commissioned nationally, and the whole um, I've always campaigned for pharmacy to have a more clinical role. So my training really was, was as a pharmaceutical chemist, very scientific, very little clinical input. And yet I find myself 35 years old. There's a national program which I helped develop called Healthy Living Pharmacy. And there was recognition that pharmacy has a huge number of touch points in, of the public. So in the UK, and I'm sure the same would be true in the US, that we actually see more people in, the day, in a day than the rest of the health system put together. Mm. And if you think about that as an opportunity to see and an opportunity to influence, an opportunity to influence everyone about everything, the, the opportunity there is huge. And if you were to right. sort of rethink of, of us as, as, as instead of the purveyors and suppliers of medication, but purveyors and suppliers of advice and pu- particularly public health advice, you could reimagine the profession. Um, and yeah. I suppose the first example of that was when Um, emergency contraception went over the counter. Now, unlike in the US, where you basically everything is either only on a doctor's prescription or or can be bought anywhere, we have our own category of medicines called pharmacy only. And it means that we get to provide some of that intermediate, uh, immediate, intermediate category of medicines, which have been, if you like, decriminalised. So it means that we've got a broader sort of therapeutic armamentarium at our fingertips than perhaps our US uh, colleagues have. So there's been an evolution of the role of pharmacy in the UK, which I've helped to champion and broaden. And that's kind of where a lot of our or prizes have been, around rather than seeing pharmacy as solely the purveyor of of prescriptions and fulfilling medicines, which still is an absolutely crucial key role, is... How do people get the best of their medicines? What advice are they getting about the use of their medicines? Are they getting side effects? Are they actually right. taking the medicines to best advantage? Should we be de-prescribing medicines? And what could the role be in public, all sorts of public health? So there's a whole um, movement in the UK, which I helped initiate, called Healthy Living Pharmacy. And it goes much beyond prescribing medicines towards lifestyle, smoking cessation, sexual health, and so on. Now it's still a relatively don't don't get me wrong I'm not over egging the pudding here it's still a relatively small proportion of our income I'd like it to be a much larger portion of our income but yeah. you kind of see where this this might be heading so I just right. think that's a bit of that's a bit of context if you like for American uh, viewers and listeners
0: Yeah I think that is helpful and and you certainly brought up the income point because the majority of yeah. the in- income from pharmacists is you know selling medications that have been prescribed by a physician so you've got the reputation of the pharmacist who gave up medications, who, who realized that there's a better way, which then yeah. kind of hurts your bottom line. So, but, so we want to get into that. So I guess that's just a yeah. little precursor. But before yeah. we get into that, You've been at this game for 35 years. I'm sure you've seen tremendous changes just in the number of people coming in for prescriptions for antidepressant medications, for proton pump inhibitors, for reflux, for cholesterol medicines, for blood pressure medicines. Tell us a little bit of what you've seen as the trajectory of the use of medications over your career.
1: We had a group of 10 pharmacies and we developed those as a group practice. So although we weren't all practicing in the same place, we were practicing in the same environment, just like a group practice of doctors and so i modeled the whole of uh Mana pharmacy group as it was then on a high performing gp practice now most of the therapeutic agents you've just described weren't even available they didn't exist when i first mm-hmm. qualified ppis weren't there we didn't have ssri so a lot of the drugs that you're talking about simply didn't exist but what also didn't exist is this, car- this absolutely cascade of cardiometric metabolic health diabetes hypertension we're seeing escalating uh as you you well know everyone's everyone whose waist has expanded and as their waist has expanded they and they've got fatter they've got sicker and it's Mm -hmm. happened in a generation or two right? right to for example when i was a kid at school i was the only fat kid in the class of slim kids Now the slim kids in the class are the only slim kids in a class of fat kids. How did that happen? So there's been this astronomical change, right, which you and I I think are going to agree has got to do with lifestyle, something to do with the nature of our diet primarily, but with other things obviously plugged into it. And so what do health systems teach you? All physicians, uh, and the same is true for pharmacists, doctors, nurses, optometrists, dentists, our training is, is really wait for the symptoms and then suppress the symptoms with drugs. Right. And it got to the point with, as you say, with my pro- trajectory, which is, it seems like everyone's on a statin or an antidepressant or both. In other words, we're medicating an entire society. Mm-hmm. So I got to the point where I was extremely senior in my profession. I'd had a number of very senior leadership roles. Um, We built a very successful pharmacy group that ran pretty much every single award and most of them twice. And yet, what did you set out to do as a health professional? That wasn't it. You set out as a health professional to make people healthier. And I reached the conclusion, despite all the accolades and relative financial success, national awards recognition, I wasn't really helping people. Right. I was stopping them getting sick As quickly as they otherwise would have done by giving them more and more medication. And I sort of thought, we're medicating now an entire society. Whereas when I started out 35 years ago, yes, people were medicated, but not at this level. What has changed in that short period of time? I mean, our genes haven't changed. What is it that's changed, that's led to this? And does it make sense? Is it the best use of um, funding? So to, put, to give you perhaps a bit more context, um, these are UK figures, but you'll be able to mirror them into the US. So the UK NHS total healthcare s- system costs about 150 billion UK pounds. So what's that? Two hundred and fifty billion dollars, two hundred dollars, two hundred billion, more or less. Okay. Um, the, the UK drugs bill is 20 billion. But the total bill for UK pharmacy is less than three billion. So all of the drug, all of the money is going on the system and the drugs. Very little of the money is going on pharmacy. And if you then mm-hmm. compare, as again, we have national systems of the total NHS budget is 150 billion. Our public health budget is about five. In other words, looking at it another way. Ninety-nine percent of the money is being spent looking after the ho- looking the door after the health after the horse has bolted, and one okay. percent of the budget is being spent better tethering the horse. None of this makes sense. So, kind of my conclusion is is kind of two things really. One is we it I, I always believed for many many years it was lack of funding. I now believe it's not lack of funding. I think the money is being spent in the wrong way. Um, And I also believe that community pharmacy could be repurposed. The fact that we earn most of our living around the use of medicines, I think that will always be the case. But there's no inherent reason that we couldn't be paid more for not dispensing a medication than the dispensing of it. So I would like to see contractual change and re-education of the public and the profession, because in the end, follow the money, honey, right? If we were paid to be more proactive about public health, then we would just like your profession would.
0: Right, and that's what I find so interesting, sort of this, Almost this conflict, or it could be a confluence of the pharmacist and the physician focusing more on prevention. You mentioned words like de-prescribing, right? No one would think of yeah. a pharmacist as de-prescribing because a pharmacist is supposed to be giving medication. So that role yeah. would be phenomenal because one, maybe you would have a little bit more time than the physician. Two, you'd be a little more focused on on the one issue rather than having to, you know, maybe sure. you know check all the different boxes that a physician would. But what happens, or what has happened in your experience, in a situation? where you maybe disagree with medications that are being prescribed or think the patient doesn't need them or think they could be coming off their medications and you sort of have that conflict with the advice from the physician how do you how do you handle that
1: there is uh, we have something called medicines use reviews and a new medicine service and and that is very much about that interface so it's a structured um, meeting with the patient in which you which you agree what the sort of uh, rules of engagement are. And it may well be that you s- say to the, the prescriber, actually, you sh- that increase the dose. But it may be equally that you say to the prescriber, reduce the dose or change the drug. Now, this is very early days. I'm not saying that we're absolutely at that place. But you mm-hmm. could see how that will come into being. But you're quite right. The conflict of interest uh, that is perceived is twofold. One is we earn our money from dispensing medication, not from dispensing it. And we earn our living from medicines that we sell. We earn nothing from the medicines that we don't sell. Right. But here's something that you might find, find quite interesting. When people go into UK pharmacy and ask a pharmacist for advice, on a third of occasions, they get literally that advice. Nothing is sold. So I think, I mean, I'm sure it's true for you as well, right? Ultimately, your professional, your professionalism should guide you first and foremost ahead of the money, so you need a living, right? We all need a living. But when I look at the kind of complete reengineering and rethinking of what Diet Doctor has reimagined it to be, and I look at the, the team of fantastic physicians you've got around you, you've obviously found a way to embrace a completely different way of thinking, to repurpose your skills um, in a way that perhaps is well, I'm convinced is better for patients, but also as a practicing clinician. Isn't it much more satisfying for you to practice in this way than just get out your prescription pad and for me to dispense the medication? None of us set out for that in the first place. I'm loving it. And I, you know, from the enthusiasm that I see among your colleagues in dietdoctor.com, I guess you guys are too.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, I've heard so many stories about people who've just sort of rejuvenated their love for their profession and for taking care of people and helping people um, just by a slight shift in the way you see things. And a big part of that is medicines aren't necessarily the answer and they have their role for sure, but they're not the, the pill for every ill, like you say is not the answer. Yeah. So, so you've made a, a very successful and brave transition then to go from being a pharmacist focused on medications to really, uh, counseling people on lifestyle and having a program that really helps people with their yep. lifestyle so they don't need the medications. Have you started, and I want to hear a little bit more about that, that program, but have you started yep. to see other your pharmacy colleagues start to catch on or start to take notice? Or is it still sort of a, a fringe approach from the pharmacy standpoint?
1: I think both in the medical profession and the pharmacy profession, it's still a fringe thing. But I tell you what, once you've practiced in this way and you've seen the results, you can't unsee it. And I think people assume it's about weight loss, but it isn't, it's about health. The weight loss kind of comes along for the ride. But once you've interacted with people and you see the light coming back into their eyes and you see everything improving, it's just the most empowering thing. Um, it's, it's, I mean, to say for all the awards that we've won, this blows everything else away. Mm -hmm. So in the last year, we've won two very major pharmacy awards. So I'm now at the point where we've got significant peer recognition from my colleagues and from my profession, not for what we've done previously in the pharmacies, but for actually for pro-longevity. And as we're growing the visibility of what we're doing, I mean, it's interesting. I know pharmacists tend to be associated with the use of medication. But in a pharmacy training, you're very well aware of numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm, and the limited benefits of medication, I think more so than the medics are. So pharmacists are generally pretty cautious about medicine. Once you start to expose them to an alternative way of being with the same core knowledge, it's amazing how enthusiastic people comes, become. So I've gathered around me a group of other clinicians. I've got a couple of other pharmacists. I've got some nurses who are absolutely loving this. And as the profile of ProLongevity grows, we're getting pharmacy colleagues contact us and saying, We love this, Graham. We know that we're earning our lot living in a way that isn't professionally satisfying, but you've mm. got to live it, you have to learn a living. Can we come and work with you? And I believe just as um, healthy living pharmacy started, ooh, 10 roughly 10 years ago and it's now spread there's now most pharmacies in the uk are actually accredited healthy living pharmacies. so you can't just imagine you've got to be one you've got to go through a proper accreditation and training right. process right. i see no reason why 10 20 years from now every pharmacy couldn't be a pro-longevity pharmacy that's my
0: vision Wow. That's, that's an impressive vision. So, Hey, you mentioned prolongevity, and I love your, your, um, image behind you there with the logo and he's got the little thing on his arm. So I assume that's a, a CGM exactly. on his arm. So now that's really interesting. Yeah, so you go exactly from, that. yeah, going away from the prescription medications to monitoring devices, which you can then base your lifestyle upon. So tell us, tell us how you use the CGM and what you see as the role of so, a continuous glucose monitor in your program.
1: So it it started, what what piqued my interest actually was the original work done out of the Weizmann uh, Institute in in Israel. I don't know if you follow Iran Segal and the uh, Day2 team. So uh, what they did was they got a group of people, gave them a continual blood glucose monitor, analysed their microbiome. And what they're able to show is that people get equal and opposite reactions to identical meals. And the explanation, which we always believed to be genetic, it's about genes, but it's not about your genes, it's about the microbiome. So I became absolutely fascinated with the role of the microbiome and how that plays, as we now know, into physical health, cardiometabolic health, and indeed mental health. And so when the, uh, in the UK, the first continual blood glucose monitors came out, I thought, this is fascinating, let's have a go at it. And my first client, and I can talk about Jeremy because uh, he's a testimonial on my website. I'm not betraying any client confidentiality here. So Jeremy and I, well, Jeremy was a friend of mine. He was an electronic engineer by background um, and a health entrepreneur. So he'd been a very, very successful health entrepreneur. I don't know whether you have it so much in the, in the US, but you, you know those electronic blood pressure machine, machines you have. When you go into your doctor, you put your arm in the machine, it takes <laughs> your blood pressure, it goes straight into the GP notes, right? He started those and then he went on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeremy and, our, Jerry and I like, had, had known each other for sort of 25 years and he wasn't particularly um, overweight, but he he'd had a problem with hypertension. And he'd been he was now in his late 50s and he'd been hypertensive since his 30s. Now, Jeremy being Jeremy, he wasn't going to see a, any, just a, any old GP, or as you would probably call it, a family physician. He'd been seeing one of the country's leading cardiologists for 20 years. And the way that hypertension is treated raised raise blood pressure is you start with the first drug, and you titrate, the, titrate that drug up to the maximum, and it's either the maximum uh, prescribable dose for that drug or the maximum that the patient will tolerate
0: Right, and then the frequently you second, add on extra drugs, right? And you keep adding third. on drugs.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. So he was at the point where he just had his fourth drug added. So on top of the other three, he was already taking. They'd added doxazosin. So it was controlling his blood pressure, but he was getting significant side effects. So that's where he was, aged hmm. let's say sixty, slightly overweight, not you know not with a bad we- uh, lifestyle, and certainly not ignorant of healthcare. Yeah, but he was lucky you know, enough to have a friend like
0: you who could come in and give him better lifestyle exactly. advice and help him get off the medications, right?
1: So I said, I said, Jem, let's have a go with the CGM. You'll love this with your you know electronic engineering background. You will absolutely right? love it. I put the CGM on him, I put the Libre device on him, and he started the data share. Next morning, huge sugar spike. So I sent him a little WhatsApp, Jem, what did you just have for breakfast? And he said, Oh, Aubran. Like I always have. And I said, Jeremy, that's just sugar. And of course, no one knows that these so-called complex healthy whole grains are a ton of sugar. Mm-hmm. So I said, it's just a ton of sugar, right? Processed sugar. So he said, okay, go and what shall I have for breakfast? I said, Well, have an omelet, right? Cheese omelette one day, avocado the next, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A month went by. He lost 12 kilos without any effort, no dieting, no hunger, no calorie counting, just by cutting the carbs. But he was still taking all this medication. And by now his blood pressure was in his boots, so he said, "What shall I do, Graham?" I said, "Well, I could do a medicines use review, but you know you've been seeing this cardiologist. Go back and see him." Anyway, long story short, another. By the time he got to see the cardiologist, another few weeks had gone by. He'd lost another sort of. I think he's now lost twelve kilos. He sees this cardiologist. Remember, he's been seeing this same guy for twenty years. And for 20 years, every time he saw him, it was an upward titration in the dose or the number of drugs. Overnight, halves his medication and says to him, in my entire professional life, I've never seen anything like it.
0: Yeah. We're
1: now, we're now two years on. Jeremy's is 23 kilos lighter. And the only medication he's now taking is a statin. And the only reason he's taking that is I can't convince him he doesn't need it. <laughs> And that was, uh, that's N equals one, right? And you and I both know that N equals one, one single example doesn't mean a thing, right? First to accept it. But it was kind of exciting. So I Mm -hmm. thought, well, I'm onto something. I don't quite know what. Let's try it in different people, different ages, different problems. And blow me down. I kept getting these unbelievable results, so much better than I'd ever achieved with the medication. I thought, I'm really definitely onto something here.
0: Yeah, I think that's what's so impressive, though, that using just this monitoring device teaches people enough about their lifestyle that they get better results than they do with medications. And so that's that's a remarkable uh, a revelation for a pharmacist, let alone for a physician yeah. or a health coach. I mean, that that's what we need to know more of, like how to use that. So yeah. let me interject for one second, though. Now, there's some sure. controversy and pushback about the CGMs um, that it will... Encourage people to find a diet that keeps an absolutely flat blood sugar, and that maybe that isn't the best goal. Now, how do you um, counsel patients that you're using the CGM with? What is the goal of wearing the CGM? Is it a flat number? Is it a flat line? Is it something else? I start
1: off by setting fairly broad parameters. Um, And my aim is to get a a projected HbA1c. So uh, for the listener, the HbA1c is your measure of your long-term glu- glucose control. And I, get, I, I have two things. One is to keep people in a, in a reduced range. So instead of, because you can have an average where everything's flat, right? You can have the same average where it's going up and down like a yo-yo.
0: Mm-hmm-hmm. The
1: flat one is fine. The up and down like a yo-yo is bad news. So I'm looking for two things, is to have um, relatively small uh, undulations in their blood glucose and a nice, steady HbA1c and to give you an idea the uh the parameters are an HbA1c this is the UK figures and you'll know the US equivalents 6.5 and above is is type 2 diabetes there's a whole other debate about whether HbA1c is a very good measure at all, but that's probably a deb- discussion for another day. I've got mm-hmm. quite some reservations about HbA1c because what you really want to know is what's going on with insulin, but that's, as I say, that's a bit of a separate debate. I, uh, so in all the studies, if you get HbA1c below 6.5, that's regarded as a fantastic result. Now, my view on that is you've got someone on the absolute precipice of diabetes and that's an outcome. I don't think it is. So I, my, for my clients, my target is a 5.5 HbA1c. In other words, they're not just almost diabetic or almost pre-diabetic, they're in a healthy low level. And, and as for the undulations, I actually think if, if you, I mean, obviously, for, um, if you're in keto, then you're very likely very to have very low and consistently low insulin levels and low and healthy <coughs> sugars. So it's, I'd like someone to explain to me what the science is behind the assertion that sugar spikes are a good thing because I don't believe that they are because sugar spikes are insulin spikes and insulin spikes are insulin resistance and insulin resistance is halfway to metabolic syndrome in my view. So I don't, I understand this controversy, but I'd like to know what science that controversy is founded upon because it doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for my understanding of what the root cause of all the diseases are. What do you think?
0: (coughs) Yeah, I think that's so, such an interesting point that, Where's the science that these sugar rises and falls are perfectly fine? But on the other side, where's the science that in someone who doesn't have type 2 diabetes, that a certain undulation is harmful? And where is that level, right? Because it's, I I agree that, that, yeah, it's not a flat line that undulations are okay, but small undulations. Then how do you define the small undulations and for whom? Because, like you said, the studies show that people are going to react very differently to very similar. Um, food intake and very similar activities. Like, you know, your blood sugar goes up with uh, high-intensity interval training. Is that the same as blood sugar going up from eating a bowl of cereal and a Danish? I would say no, absolutely not. Do we have the science to prove that? No, but it makes sense. Yeah, it, it certainly makes sense. So I think we do need science to sort of catch up to help us better define the exact roles, and, and we have a guide on this uh, at dietdoctor.com about the use of CGMs and some of our guides, but I think it does need to be individualized to a degree to set your goals, know yeah. what your baseline health is, where you're starting from, and then figure out the lifestyle that works for you. So you, you'd mentioned a keto diet. Um, is yeah. that the diet you recommend the most for most people? Is that the one that you find works the best? Or how do you see that approach?
1: Um, the short answer is no. And here's my philosophy, which is, I think, you know, you get the diet wars and you get the cults. And I know you're not cultist about, cultish about it in Diet mm-hmm. Doctor, but a lot of people, it, it becomes, you know, a, a low-carb cult or a keto cult or this cult. I reject all of those. I'm not interested in becoming part of any cult. What I'm interested in is for the N equals one client in front of me, what are their objectives? What do they want out of it, right? Now we can talk about HBA1C, we can talk about hypertension. That means nothing to me. I mean, I'm, you know, in my 60s now. What matters to me is can I get on the can I get down and play with my children are starting to produce children? Can I have a completely functional life at the age of 60 and be as fit and active to play with my grandchildren as I did with when I had my kids 30 years ago? That's what matters to me. Now, you can put the science behind it. And of course, HbA1c, systolic blood pressure, lipid profile, all those other metrics mean something. But to me, you've got to translate the science that you know into a lifestyle benefit for the client that works for them. And for the majority, and I would absolutely agree, if you're severely out of control metabolic disease, you're... Type 2 diabetic, or you're type 1 diabetic, keto in a sense is probably the only answer that's going to give you the results unless you're happy to take a lot of medication. For everybody else, there's a discussion to be had, right? And the discussion is what are your objectives? Where do you want to be? None of us is perfect. So, what's the balance for you of health risks, health benefits against the overall lifestyle that you want to choose? And how can I get the client to that end goal with the least cost and the least personal pain. So I would say for none of my clients, it's like smoking, right? If any, the truth is if someone said to you, if I smoke one cigarette a month, is that harmful? Is it going to kill me? No. The damage about smoking is smoking consistent numbers of cigarettes regularly in an escalating dose. So secretly, if a client says to me, look, if I treat every so often and I have a a not very healthy bowl of chips, whatever, will it kill me? No, it won't. So and I think if you take a very absolutist approach, you lose people. Yeah. So it's what is your goal as an individual? And for most of my clients, because they're not out of control, type two diabetics, they don't need to be keto. Mm.
0: They
1: certainly. So all my clients are lowish carb, then we play with that balance between the other macronutrients. We've only got three macronutrients to play with, haven't we? Um, Mm -hmm. Proteins, carbs, and fats. And playing with those three ratios is significant. But to me, if you only focus on that, you're missing the majority of the story, which is how does that play into the, the role of the microbiome? There's 100 trillion bacteria in our gut. And also, let's not forget micronutrients. Because I think we, we confuse energy and calories with nutrition. And in fact, I was just having the discussion with Robert Lustig uh, this week, which is processed food has got calories in it. But I, he and I both agreed it's not food, it's poison with calories in it. I am never going to get my cl- to encourage my clients to eat poison with calories in it. But yeah. if they want a certain balance of their macronutrients that works for them and leaves them in a good and healthy place, Fine, so um, that's a long answer to a short question, but we are not necessarily keto, neither are we anti-keto, we are what works for the client, what does the data show improvement in the client and what does the client want out of it? So it could be, we've got the whole panoply of different interventions, sleep, stress, exercise, time-restricted feeding, we use all of it to benefit the client, not one thing.
0: Yeah, and I've noticed on your website you have a, like a, a sleep questionnaire and you really do sort of prioritize sleep. What have you seen um, in terms of CGM response to sleep hygiene and sleep performance?
1: I think this gets forgotten, right? Uh, you know, w- within all these cults, if your sleep is poor, you are building your house on, f- on sand. And I have many clients who come to me and they're worried about their waste or their lipids or their blood pressure or whatever. No one's ever discussed their sleep with them. Why has that happened? Well, none of, n- no health professionals are trained in, in sleep and none of the drugs work, right? Yeah. Most of the drugs either don't work or do, do more harm than good or both. So sleep hygiene gets forgotten, Right. And, of right. course, in our modern life, it's even harder to have good sleep hygiene. So for a lot of my clients who they think I'm going to start talking about weight and calories, we start with sleep. So we'll, get, we'll administer that sleep questionnaire. And I'm a huge um, fan of Matthew Walker. Okay. And I think his book, Why, Why We Sleep, is stunning. I learned yep. loads from it. So that's kind of... I very much agree, You know, Matthew Walker and Sachin Panda are my two go-to um, experts on, on all of this, right? The algorithms, what helps? So we spend a lot of time discussing sleep, sleep hygiene with people, and a lot of them have got terrible sleep and they've had terrible sleep for many years and no one's ever raised it with them. So they've kind of got used to living short slept, high stress lives, and it's never been a focus. And when we start to introduce to them the idea of sleep is the is the basis of ev- of all the rest of your health, why don't we mm-hmm. start there? Um, so I'm a big fan of the Aura Ring, for example, because of the fantastic data that it gives. So ten percent of my clients have got the Aura Ring. Any of my clients who've got a Fitbit or a Polar watch or whichever it was, I mean, I remember picking up sleep apnea in one of my clients from their Fitbit, and they'd never really looked at the data. So uh, your uh, sleep is such a such fundamental importance. If you ignore it, you know yeah. you really are bu- building your your health your house of health on on, on sand. I would
0: say. Yeah. So sleep tractors are so interesting though because they can give very good information. But the, the next step is what do you do with that information? And if you just buy it and don't do your research and you're looking at the the watch or the aura Ring or something, you're sort yeah. of left with a, okay, now what? So that's when someone like you can sort of help integrate yeah. that I- information. So, but what are some of your tips um, that you see the most successful? Because we hear, uh, look, even if doctors don't counsel people on sleep, which they usually don't, you could just go to Google sleep hygiene and you'll come up with the same things. Make sure your room is Dark. Make sure it's cool. Make sure it's quiet. Make sure you turn yeah. off your screens. Make sure you know you get light in the morning and and you know don't exercise too late. Don't eat too late. You know there's a whole laundry list of things, which yeah. when people look at, they're like, how am I going to do all of these? So what do you see as like your yeah. top advice that that has the biggest impact for the most people to then impact their scores?
1: I, particularly with the aura ring, but with any of these other devices, once you start to see in real time how you track and how your health is, is affected by a good night's sleep or a bad sleep. I think that's the first thing. I think one, part of the reason the CGM works so well is, I mean, the largest sugar spike I've had in the last two weeks was one single green apple. Mm-hmm. Right? An apple a day keeps a doctor away. Well, maybe not so much. Once people start to see how playing with these different parameters influences their sleep, i Yes, in theory, you could learn all this stuff for yourself, but in practice, people don't. And the example I always give, actually, it's one of my pet uh, examples. Blood pressure monitors have been available, effective and cheap for, what, 20 years? You can buy one for 20 bucks from the pharmacy. What's happened to blood pressure over the last 20 years, it's got worse, yeah. right? Diet Coke, how long has been Diet Coke been widely available for? 20 years? Has it cured the diabetes epidemic? It's got worse right (laughs) and i think fitbit have been out for 10 years and fitbit have delivered i think 100 million devices during which time everyone's health has got worse so you know none of these things work in the way that we think they're going to work because i think what you need this is my conclusion which is i'm completely in favor of technology but unless you've got a health professional guide or mentor working it through with you you kind of don't get it or it drifts away And Mm -hmm. I think where we come is we bring all these technologies into a place. We sit down and discuss it with the individual. And what we're able to do is help them prioritize what's important and make them realize what's important. And the reason I like this program so much is because we spend six to 12 months with the clients and we see them face to face um, for an hour every two weeks. We're on that health journey with them. Whereas in the health system, you know, typically a GP in this country has a total of 10 minutes with a client once a year. As a community pharmacist, I get three minutes with a client discussing their prescription. And it's patently not enough. Yeah. So the testing isn't the problem, right? If the testing was going to solve the problem, it would have done it by now. You need something else that's beyond the testing to influence and support people. And it works. I mean, it patently works. You were asking about top tips. I don't think there is one topping. i mean, I know about in your clinical experience, but in mine, there isn't one. The top tip is the N equals one. So for mm. this one individual, what is the low hanging fruit that you can identify that enables them to make some early rapid changes? And once they've made these early rapid changes and they feel radically, and I'm talking about within two to four weeks, the lights coming back on in people's eyes and they're starting to see what they could achieve that's so empowering that they can then do the next step and the next step. and So you're building stepwise on a journey, small incremental steps. And I think my role is to identify the low hanging fruit for that individual, help them take that one step and then the next step and then the next Mm -hmm. step.
0: Yeah, and it's so important to have someone to guide you through that because uh, what I see with sleep is that whatever changes you make now, aren't going to have effect necessarily in one day, two days, three days. It's probably going to take weeks for you to really see the overall impact. Um, And so you need someone to sort of help you stick with it because how many people stick with something where you don't get immediate feedback, right? We're in this uh, like immediate feedback society, immediate gratification type society. And if you need to keep a consistent sleep pattern for a couple of weeks before you really start to see the benefit, you need someone, a cheerleader or a coach, you need someone to help you through that, yeah, to yeah. encourage you and, and let you realize that you are going to see those benefits. So that, that's part of the trouble I see is that we expect things to work right away. Like a pill, you take a pill and it works right away. Yeah, yeah but it doesn't work the way you would like it to. So
1: well it's interesting. I'm not disagreeing with you Brett, but certainly in some of my clients I can absolutely see bad night sleep, hyperglycemia the next day. Right. Bad night sleep and we monitor their we monitor their blood pressure. Those who are hypertensive or borderline hypertensive, we model that we model we m- monitor their blood pressure really forensically. And you can you can absolutely the next day see that they feel worse, they look worse. Okay. They know they report you. They feel worse. They have got raised uh, blood pressure, uh, mm-hmm. and they're gl- and they're more glyce- hyperglycemic. Not okay. for everyone, but for many clients, they absolutely can see the cause and effect. So the correlation becomes very very quick.
0: Yeah, that I agree with. That you can see the negative consequences of a of a poor night's sleep very quickly. Blood sugar being one of the biggest ones. Um, I guess what yeah. I was getting at when you start when you start trying to improve your habits to improve sleep, you might see some small improvements initially, but the bigger improvements sort of take time. But I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Like that's where a CGM can be so helpful because you get a terrible night's sleep. You you drink too much alcohol or you stayed up too late, you know, doing work or whatever the case is. You get a terrible night's sleep. Now all of a sudden your sugars are 10 to 15 points higher eating the exact same food. And you're thinking what's going on here? I'm eating the same thing. Why is it that my that my CGM is so much higher? And you have to have someone help you draw it back to the sleep to connect the dots, so you can say, "Oh, yeah, yeah. it is important." That's yeah. right, and that's one of the definitely one of the benefits of it. So, do, do you do you see it helps your clients make um, lifestyle interventions a little more enthusiastically when they see that correlation?
1: I think there's an assumption that people are happy happy taking medication, and they want an instant, you know gratification i know we're in the society that it's all about instant gratification but all the health research shows otherwise that actually people are very reluctant to take their medication and generally speaking don't and they've done extensive studies around the use of medication and the, the it keeps the doctor happy but it doesn't really, in many mm-hmm. cases, keep... And there's a mismatch in understanding here. Again, I don't want to come across as anti-doctor because I'm absolutely not. My, my partner's a GP. So this isn't about, you know, trying to um, nail one particular profession, but uh, the working hypothesis of health systems that people are coming to their doctor, looking for a prescription pad, which the doctor has to somehow fulfil, and then the joint expectations are met. I don't think that's borne out in reality, and those of us who practice in this space, that's not what we find. I mean, clearly for some people it is, and that's a choice they're entitled to make. Yeah. But I don't agree that the hypothesis is always that 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 people are seeking a pill for every ill. I think people are seeking a responsive professional who's empathic, who understands their goals, and can provide them with alternatives. And if you say, well, you can, you know, we can increase your hypertensive, antihypertensive medication, we can give you a bigger dose of metformin, we can add this, we can add that, but we can also offer you a lifestyle intervention. I would say for at least 50% of people would rather have the lifestyle intervention. Maybe more than 50, but certainly 50% 50 in my experience.
0: I really like to hear that. And I'm glad that more people would want the intervention um, but I mean, we, I think we have to be honest that it's much easier to take a pill than to do the harder work of changing what you eat, changing your exercise, changing your sleep. So I wonder if, yeah. you know, the compliance to pills and a lifestyle both can be low. Um, but it seems like the literature would support the compliance with pills is better than the compliance with lifestyle. So the question is how do we flip that mm. on his head and how do we get Effective lifestyle interventions; people to be more compliant with that. Um, I've got my hypotheses, but let me hear yours.
1: Two things: I'm not sure that the literature is ever being powered deliberately to look at um, the option of lifestyle changed against medication. I think the entire system is stacked in favour of industry-funded, (laughs) industry-sponsored interventions using drugs. Yeah. Where only the I mean this has changed recently, but there's a fantastic talk by Ben Ben Goldacre, where he describes, I don't know if you follow Ben Goldacre, he's got a wonderful TED talk. And he describes that as a physician who's quite geeky and wants to prescribe on an evidence basis, realize that the only trial data that historically has been published is the positive outcomes. All the drug trials that didn't show an outcome never get published, they get buried. Now, that's improved recently, but I would kind of debate that the evidence is as strong as, as it's generally assumed to be, that the drugs work and they're complied with and the lifestyle interventions don't. I don't think there's ever been a proper trial that looks at these, you know, the kind of work that David Unwin, mean, if you had David Unwin, Dr. David Unwin, the UK GP oh, on yeah. the
0: podcast. right? definitely. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, if you, look at, if you look at the kind of work that he's doing, I think he's starting to produce an evidence base to disprove that. So I would challenge that as a working hypothesis um, in, in, in the first place. But mm-hmm. then I think if you work intensely, in health systems, you don't have the time with you to work in that way. Right. And that's where I have got the time. And I look at the you know the 20 billion UK drugs bill escalating, ever going upwards, and I'm thinking when I'm de-prescribing for all these clients, that will more than pay for my service. Ignoring the health gain, right? And I would support the use of the medication if it was genuinely a cure. But you and I both know it isn't a cure. We're suppressing symptoms. We're not addressing the root cause, and actually, we're not really stabilizing the patient. We, you know, I was brought up that type two diabetes is a chronic, uh, progressive disease with with an inevitable endpoint, and in that a journey the only thing you can do is slow down the rot and inevitably the client will need more or patient will need more and more m- medication and that's the way the system works and that's how i practice for 25 years it's only since i've seen with my own eyes that that's not true and that you can um you can certainly put diabetes into remission there's a whole debate about re- the definition of reversal and whether that's possible so let's use the relatively safe term remission and with my eyes on a daily basis, and with your eyes on a daily basis, we're both seeing people going into remission, leading fewer and fewer drugs, having a better and better quality of life, and saving health systems fortunes, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. But I think the problem is most medical practices and medical institutions aren't set up in a way to achieve those results. They're, they're not rewarded for those results right now. And the interventions needed and the support needed aren't there. I mean, let's face it, you know, clinicians are busy. They need help. And that's where a program like yours can really help. That's where a program like DD Pro of what we're we're creating now is meant to help the clinicians guide the patients, help the patients guide themselves under the auspices of the clinician to get to that point, to really start changing the framework of how we see this. And and every time I, I hear someone say, you know, diabetes was a... I was taught it was a chronic disease. You just add medications. It is so true. And now we're starting to see that turned on its head. And it's remarkable. And I think we need to point out how remarkable it is. Because eventually there's going to come a point where people are going to be like, oh, yeah, we always knew that. We always knew we could do that. Well, no, we didn't. I mean, this is amazing. This is such an amazing time in history, in medical history, that we really are making this a push. And it needs to spread everywhere. So are you starting, you know, with Dr. Unwin being so prominent in the UK, are you starting to see that? Um, progress more as a message in the uk
1: we absolutely are so um i've followed david since the early days of public health collaboration and i followed doctor since your early days and i have to take my my hat off to you guys because you're you created the most amazing resource a huge amount of which is free and it's life-changing and that requires you know all of you could have gone on you know um, and I, I'll have fo- followed quite a lot of the leading lights in doctor. All of you could have practiced conventionally, not challenged the paradigm, and made a very nice living, right? And not <laughs> following the paradigm and trying to ch- and challenging parad- that's difficult. That's hard work. That means recognizing, as I did after practicing in a certain way for twenty-five years, that maybe I'd done as much good as harm, and as much harm as good. That's a hard thing to come to terms with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but once okay. you start to practice this way you, you just can't a- unsee it and that's one of the reasons i'm so delighted to have come you know that we've got now some sort of pro- professional collaboration between pro longevity and diet doctor because i think we've got the same aims the same vision and it's entirely synergistic i think we're at the beginning of something big i really do you know you've got to go back and it, I, i'm sure you're aware of this in 1994 there was a Senate hearing about smoking and the chief executives of the five biggest tobacco cl- uh, companies all appeared in front of the Senate and swore that in their best understanding of the science, there was no link between smoking and lung mm-hmm. cancer. Not in 1934, not in 1954, but in 1994,
0: right? Yeah, it's right. It, it was
1: almost within, it's within, within our life, t- right? And they'd known the truth for 40 years. And I believe that the you know, tobacco industry playbook and the processed food playbook are the same playbook. You just ink out tobacco and put processed food. But, of course, smoking is one thing, right? It's one industry. The food industry makes the smoking industry look nothing. And then we haven't even discussed the farmer industry. So right. we're up against these huge I- industries, which can be a massive force for good or a massive force for evil and we have to convert them to be a massive force for good, which they clearly can be. And I believe that there's a social movement for change, public health collaboration, Diet Doctor, the various conferences that we're aware of. We're on the beginning of something huge and something that gives us all optimism and hope for what all of us came into our professions to achieve.
0: Yeah, and I think the more professions we get seeing this seeing this motion and seeing where this is headed, uh, the better and that's why I'm so thankful to have, you know, pharmacy on board, right? That that the people who are supposed to be responsible for the medications are now seeing the downfalls of the medications and the upside of the lifestyle but not just the traditional lifestyle we've been taught for 50 years but looking at it from a broader perspective, finding out what really works for the individual. So, that's what I think we need, different people from different aspects of healthcare all coming together to forward this movement and, and that's why I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Um, so what, what can we expect from you in the future and where can we find out more about you? So
1: um, we're at early doors with this um, and we're on a journey. Um, and, you know, I, I always say, you know, Bill Gates is on a mission to rid the world of malaria. And if you said that 20 years ago, that you would have said that's a ridiculous thing. That can never happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I firmly believe that people like like, like us – could rid the world of type two diabetes. And I don't think that's a ridiculous thing because if you go back 100 years, type two diabetes, cancer, dementia, uh, cardiovascular disease basically didn't exist. These are man-made diseases that are, you know, 100 to 120 years old, based in lifestyle and if you start to and you know either our either our genes have changed changed radically in 120 years which is ridiculous we've got an incredibly stable genome or there's something else and yeah. there's something else is lifestyle yeah so i think that we're on you know i think i want to see all health professions repurposed our core knowledge and skills are fantastic but at the end of it we end up in this kind of a uh, backwater or sort of blind alley that ends in diagnosis of symptoms and suppression of symptoms with drugs we're never taught root cause we're not taught about sleep nutrition and exercise once you take that core knowledge that you've had as a health professional from whichever profession you come come to you start to practice this this way and you understand the evidence base and the sequence that's led us over 120 years to this terrible place that's getting worse in, you know we're seeing waistlines um and health deteriorating in front of us right we're yeah. seeing longevity uh, i mean healthy longevity is getting going back Uh, backwards for a long time but now in most of the developed world life expectancy is actually going backwards so we're spending more and more and more on health systems and getting less and less return people are not living longer living shorter lives i think we can turn that around And I think we can do that. In fact, we've got to do it. We've got to do it in the next 20 to 40 years. Otherwise, the consequences for humanity are terrible and the consequences for budgets and health budgets are completely unsustainable. So where we want to go, we've got two things going. We want to expand our clinical team, but we're also in the process of app development. So we've been given quite a big government grant. So the plan is to take our service into the virtual environment so that... um, in order to scale something, you have to use big data and apps. And at the moment, we're bringing all that data to get in my head, right? <laughs> if we, if, and we're starting to model this. So if we can bring together the biometric data that your family physician will, will uh, correlate, so your lipid profile, your liver function tests, your insulin levels, et cetera, et cetera, is one set of data. And we can bring on top of that your fit d- bit data, your ordering data, whatever plus our clinical skills what we're working on is a virtual version of our service which will make it a scalable be internationalizable if that's a word and also reduce the price so we're hoping in the next three years to have you know Much better outcome data. We're also about to start a PhD with one of the leading schools of pharmacy. So, we're hoping to have PhD level outcome data as we'll be able to do proper pharma economic analysis of what we're achieving. In other words, what are the outcomes? What are the costs? What are the cost benefits on the one hand? And a virtual model. So, that's the way that we see the the future.
0: That's an exciting future. And I I look forward to seeing more about that. So, thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Diet Doctor podcast.
1: No, thank you, and thanks very much for having me.